Welcome to episode six of the Think Tank podcast, brought to you by the Digital Innovation Group at Providence Health. Think Tank is a supercharged brainstorming session between two leaders from different verticals to help us solve some of healthcare's biggest challenges. This is Kelly Stonelake. Thank you for joining us. Today, we will be discussing how we improve access for end users through digital services. Joining us today is Aaron Martin, Providence Health's Chief Digital Officer, and Madur Agarwal, who is the SVP for Digital Channels and Customer Experience at Pearson. Pearson creates world-class education and assessment tools, content, products, and services to help learners at every stage open doors to new experiences. Welcome, Aaron and Madur, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Kelly. Looking forward to our, our discussion. Really excited to be here. Yeah. So this is such an interesting topic. We're talking about digital access in a time where the norms and expectations for access on pretty much everything from where I get my food to how I see my doctor to how I go to school and how I learn, all of that's changed. So I would love just as a way to kick us off, can we jump in on a recap from you both on what's changed for your businesses since February, March, where we have we have coronavirus, we have BLM movement, we have so many things happening in the world that are really impacting all of us, but especially your industry. So we'd just love to hear what's been going on for you since then. Yeah, sure. Um, it, there's been a massive amount of change in healthcare. Uh, we we're the first uh, health system to serve uh, a coronavirus patient up in Everett um, in January. And so we've been kind of in response mode now uh, for, you know, over five months. And it has been an incredible uh, experience. And it's been an honor to, you know, as, a, as somebody who's a technologist to be even involved with um, helping kind of protect our patients and 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 especially our caregivers who are, are kind of the heroes of the of the of the year and probably the decade. Um, and and what was interesting is is a lot of the technology that we had built over time was built specifically to serve a very relatively small pay, uh, population of patients before COVID, uh, virtually and digitally, and give them digital access. And it was mainly focused around. Uh, what I would call um, kind of low acuity care, which means something that you need, you know, kind of taking care of that day. It's not something you're going to wait for, but it wasn't something severe. So it might be, do I have strep? Do I have the flu? I need to see a nurse practitioner or a physician, that kind of thing. And then what happened with with uh, COVID, when COVID hit, um, you know, demand shot up about 30x uh, day over day. And what we saw happen was... Um, you know, patients becoming very, very concerned as to whether or not that they, uh, they had COVID. A ton of worried well, and a ton of patients who um, actually did, you know, were were you know possible COVID patients. And so we had to build is you know kind of retool the the, uh, the the platform from you know a platform that was kind of seeking to serve patients, uh, you know, seeking care for low acuity, um, you know, kind of same day care, uh, you know, visits to almost all the populations, a huge volume of populations, and then um, turning it around to kind of protecting the deer, re the, you know, the very kind of, you know, scarce re clinical resources we that then then had and creating a, a triage process to, uh, you know, give as many people access to a conversation as to whether or not they may have COVID. And then if we, if they did self-assess using a bot that we deployed, um, 
we could give them a video visit and have them see a nurse practitioner who can then, you know, diagnose them. Um, and then if they were diagnosed, then we can monitor them at home scalably if they didn't need to be admitted into the hospital. And all that happened within a matter of weeks, you know, those, that deployment of that technology and that reconfiguration of that technology. And then simultaneous to this, what COVID did to our industry was it not only showed, um, you know, many of the, 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 the problematic features of the American healthcare industry, the first one being our lack of, you know, generally uh, digital adoption across the industry. You know, Providence, you know, has been working on this for six years, but, you know, you saw this kind of rapid uh, adoption of, of technology to serve patients remotely. Um, but it also showed, you know, our fundamental business model has a flaw in terms of we're paid on a fee-for-service basis to serve patients, you know, you know kind of per per sick event, if you will. And what we need to do is move to risk. But the third one is 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 most important, which kind of came up, you know, with respect to the Black Lives Matter movement, um, is the inequity in which, you know, our you know, patients have access to uh, to healthcare resources across the country, and you see this in in, in the COVID um, um, fatality rates. Uh, Black Americans uh, have a much much higher rate, uh, you know, of of succumbing to COVID than than other racial groups, and that is not any particular feature of the epi- epidemiology. It's a feature of the systematic bias that we have in healthcare. So it, it exposed a number of huge problems in healthcare. Uh, one of them being, you know, kind of the systematic uh, racism and bias, bias in the American healthcare system. Aaron, um, that's that is. You know, I'm sitting here listening to you and, and, and going, first of all, my thought and my thanks to every healthcare worker who's been at the front lines for now um, three to four months uh, to keep all of us safe. And I did not realize that St. Providence was the, was the first to be the first COVID patient. So even more, more admiration for, uh, for that. But there's something else you said that completely resonated with me around the spike, you know, 30x. And and while we, we've been at uh, building digital capabilities, uh, we we weren't almost in some ways ready for the the prime time, correct? Uh, in 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 a lot of ways, if we are honest to ourselves, uh, the way I, I would look at it is, I, I would have said. Hey, most of our population or target population from a traditional education system was born digital. Uh, they were born with uh, cell phones. They were born with laptops, and and they they were they were ahead. We knew that, right? That our our customers were ahead of where 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 we were. Uh, but we never fathomed a world where in twenty four to forty eight hours, all of this will flip from you know going from primarily analog to going primarily digital, correct? Or exclusively digital, in fact. So in that sense, I would, I would say with, uh, with uh, that constraint, uh, I wouldn't say digital learning, remote learning has done fairly well. You know, they, billions of people across the world have been, have been able to at least get some form of synchronous and asynchronous learning. The school year, uh, as we know it, in any part of the world is not lost. Uh, per se, but that is uh, that is the minimum we should be 
we should be expecting. And I think what needs to happen in the moving forward is we actually need to strengthen our digital capabilities to a point where there can be true, uh, to use the metaphor in retail, omni-channel learning that can take place uh, with digital tools, with online, with online capabilities, with you know, in-person capabilities. We actually need to learn from the retailers on how to achieve true omnichannel learning or hybrid learning as it's happening. And that's what a lot of people are scrambling with and for uh, as we as we come to fall 2020, at least here in the in the US. Awesome. Yeah. I so I have been so looking forward to this conversation with you two for exactly the points you just laid out. I mean, healthcare and education are fascinating when it comes to that intersection between access and digital, because as we think about uh, how the internet, you know, we've, it's been around for 20 years, it's changed a lot of industries, it really feels like that change and acceleration from my standpoint, from a consumer standpoint, has happened over the last, you know, three to five years. And then, yeah, the last four months in such a such a accelerated fashion. Uh, I, you know, I'm 15 years out of college and the, my experience going to college and my experience setting a doctor's appointment over my lifetime has generally been similar to that of my mom and my grandma, right? You show up, you show up to class, you have a relationship with a teacher, you make a doctor's appointment, you know, your provider. Uh, but now, as I see in the news of how kids are getting their, you know, school age kids are getting access to uh, their curriculum, my experience in connecting with my doctor, with my therapist virtually, suddenly it's so different. And I would love to hear more from you about where you think we're at on this digital acceleration curve? Are we living in the future yet, or is this just the beginning? Yeah, Kelly, I'm I'm, I'm happy to start. You you talk about graduating from college 15 years ago. I graduated a lot longer than than that, and in, in in some ways, you can you can make the case that it hasn't has has not changed. Though in all in all fairness, I I would say it has changed. Right. I, when I went to college. There was still this notion of, as an example of textbook, the physical textbook. And now, uh, as an example, all of the courseware or a large part of the courseware is digital. In fact, Pearson announced last year that it was going to go digital first with its courseware. Uh, part of it is the economics of that, but part of it is because uh, the consumer behavior and expectation have has evolved uh, per, per se. But, but again, to the point, the changes weren't fundamental, right? They were incremental. Mm-hmm. Wait, so are, are you are you saying I should finally get rid of my shelves of college textbooks that I'm still hanging uh, on to? <laughs> absolutely. I think the future of three-year edition cycles in terms of college textbooks is is going away. And we college textbooks or courseware material are going to be like uh, software in the cloud, which are going to be updated uh, on uh, a frequent uh, on a frequent basis. Absolutely, correct. And so, so absolutely, that is that is going to happen. Though I may still love my 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 physical books, you know, but that's a that's a choice that you can you can make. Uh, but to to your point about the about the future, the new normal, I do think we are going to go to a hybrid world, and and I think that's going to happen in two forms. From a traditional education system. The education system that happens in the first two decades of your life, right? And different countries call it differently. In the U.S., we call it K to 12 and the U.S. higher education system. 
that will still there's a, there's a there's going to be continued value of the in-person experience and that is not purely from a learning perspective that is from a growing up perspective because the community that makes that up absolutely is as important as the classroom experience but i think the fundamental shift that has happened is the notion of learning being confined to the two decades of your life has gone to a life of learning or lifelong learning as we say so now you are more likely to be learning in you know in your 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s because if you think of a 100 year life per per se and that is more and more going to be digital first digital exclusive things think of things as micro credential things of you know you're doing this from an employability perspective and that is going to be much more just in time in the evenings on the weekends and that model is going to be at least in my mind digital first and that is something that we have to raise as as uh, you know a society uh, as education ecosystem to achieve achieve that um, i i am definitely curious how aaron thinks about it from a healthcare space perspective because yeah new models are coming from what i hear yeah it's it's interesting um when you talk to our ceo rod hogman he he talks about you know, the three industries who are kind of on the, you know, kind of the back end of digital adoption are healthcare, education, and the government. And, um, and there's a whole bunch of different reasons why I think all three have been kind of laggards in kind of, you know, adopting digital technology. Uh, you know, for healthcare, uh, it, is, it is a very complex, large uh, industry and that is very, very, for good reason, highly regulated, right? And so that's been kind of, you know, a big part of it. But I think what, you know, that the, the, you know, COVID has really done is demonstrate that if you change a couple of, you know, key variables, things can happen pretty fast. And so when, you know, people, I, I had a conversation with somebody the other day and, you know, we were talking about this and I said, well, you know, if a year ago you told me that, you know, if you had asked me what, what is the thing that would cause massive digital adoption within, you know, kind of, you know, in, in our primary care networks and in the way that we serve patients fundamentally? I would, you know, two things I would tell you is we would have to shut down the clinics and get paid the same. And those two things happened during COVID, right? I mean, we had, you know, all of a sudden the government and payers because of the crisis being willing to, uh, you know, pay the exact same for a virtual visit as they did an in-person visit. So that was one big variable. And then we had to shut down the clinics because of uh, lack of PPE, right? So there was a lot of concern around, you know, infection and, and, and we also just didn't have enough masks to serve these patients outside of, we bar barely had enough to s serve them within, you know, kind of the hospital environment and much less the clinical environment. So, um, so those are, you know, not surprisingly, we, we had this, this huge kind of uptake. The, the big issue for us is going to be making sure as an industry that we uh, follow through because our fear is, is that we'll backslide. Right. And my personal fear is, is also in addition to that, we, because, you know, most of, and I'd be interested to, to hear your take on this matter is, is, you know, um, we've also served up all of our patients to disruptors now through this entire process, because now if you think about it, um, most health systems have very quickly assembled a virtual, you know, platform for, for their patients. 
it's kind of clunky from the patient's perspective. Um, and it's definitely clunky from the provider's perspective. If we don't solve both of those issues very, very quickly, um, you know, it's open season, you know, for somebody who could come in and provide a much more kind of, you know, streamlined, awesome kind of consumer experience as well as provider experience. And so, um, so our team, fortunately, has been working on that for the past six years, the platform that we built that we use to kind of scale, um, you know, a lot of the, 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 the response uh, to this is a, a platform called DexCare. And it, this will be our third spin out. We just hired the CEO. And while we were deploying, uh, sorry, while we were dealing with the, um, uh, the response to, to COVID, we actually had to uh, deploy another health system in the midst of that. And uh, that was a very uh, stressful time because not only were we kind of fighting our own fire, but we were also, you know, one of our neighbors said, hey, you know, we need some help here, too. And and what we got to see was, uh, uh, you know, a platform that was built by a group of, you know, folks from kind of Amazon and Microsoft built to scale actually worked really, really well in that context. So it's, I'm, I'm very optimistic that the, the industry can get there. Um, you know, we, we feel like we've got a pretty seamless experience right now for consumers. We're seeing kind of 90 NPS scores on, you know, on, on the front end of that. So consumers love what patients love the platform that we built. But I think for the entire industry, um, there's a there's a danger that providers may just say, look, this is too hard. Now that the patients are kind of coming back, um, I'm having to kind of run two, three, four patients within an hour. And I'm just going to start asking them to kind of come back into clinic um, and, instead of doing a virtual visit. And that will be a fundamental turnoff for patients who have enjoyed that experience. And then we're, as an industry, very open to a lot of really, really well-run big tech and small tech disruptors in the marketplace that could kind of come and take those patients. Aaron, that's a great, great point that, that you bring up. And I at least noted two, two points that you highlighted. Um, one was the fact that we, we shouldn't take a, a, a step, step back and I totally agree with you in terms of, I think you use the word clunky platforms, assemble clunky platforms. You're absolutely right. Uh, as, as industries, if we don't develop uh, platforms that are not only stable, but that have an awesome consumer grade experience, the likes of what people expect from uh, those companies up in Seattle, correct, or in Silicon Valley, uh, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. At the same time, I do feel that from a consumer behavior perspective, I do expect some consumer behavior to change. I, I equate almost like this to uh, Instacart shopping during COVID. You allowed substitutes when you were actually doing Instacart shopping during, during COVID and you were okay with that. Now, when COVID settles down, you may not be okay with, with, with that. So I, I do expect consumer behavior and, and and the key for us would be to understand what is, you know, where the consumers are going back to their original habits versus where we are forcing them uh, or our constraints are forcing them to go back to their original habits. And they will be a lot less forgiving if we, due to our constraints, force them to go back uh, and, and regress with all the convenience they have, uh, you know. That, that is a really great point. It can't be. You know, like the flip side of it is, is we also can't, 
you know, quote unquote, force people who who thought virtual visits, you know, in healthcare was suboptimal for their care, but they were doing it because of the concern around, you know, the virus. Um, so, yeah, it's a very, very great point. Yeah, let's talk more about that. I, something I was thinking about as you both were speaking is we're talking about access and my perspective has been, wow, you know, look at the acceleration in access over the last several months. But the reality is in your industries, in most cases, people haven't actually been left with any other choice, right? It's expanded access, but kind of by necessity. You know, the Instacart example, you still could make the choice to go to the grocery store, right? If you wanted to. Uh, my, you know, kid's entire ed school moved online. There was no choice in that. My therapist only will meet online, no choice in that. And so I want to pivot and talk a little bit more broadly about why access matters for society. Because as you both mentioned, there are a lot of players. There's the there's this patient, there's the student, there's the educator, there's the doctor, and everyone kind of has to be on board. And so is this consumer-led? Is this uh, industry led, and can, can we talk a little bit ab about how it matters for society, why it matters for society, and then just broadly, what does that expanded access mean for healthcare? What does that expanded access mean for education? Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll start. I, the the um um this is something I think about a lot, especially with Providence's mission. Uh, we we serve everyone, especially the poor and vulnerable, and that is you know um, central to our mission. And, and it's one of the reasons why I came here and, uh, and it's the reason why I would say most of my, my team came here from various different technology companies is, you know, um, you get up every, you get up every morning on a Monday, uh, you know, can't wait to, 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 to hit the week because you know, you're going to, you're going to, you know, push the ball forward and do some good for some folks. And then, um, and then you just kind of leave it on the field the entire week and you're exhausted by about this time. <laughs> it's, it's not Friday, but it's, it's feeling like it. Um, and, and it's just a great, great kind of, you know, place to work from that point of view. Um, you know, I think one of the things that my team always thinks about is in terms of lack of access and convenience, that hurts the poor and vulnerable way more than it does middle and upper income. And the reason is, is if you think about it, you know, let's let's take, for instance, somebody who's, you know, lower income, uh, let's say a single mom, you know, with a couple of kids, one of the kids, uh, you know, gets uh, <clears throat> uh, a sick, has to be kind of taken into a clinic. She is basically got to take probably half that day off just to accommodate, you know, our lack of access she probably has to, you know, um, travel uh, uh, quite a distance. She's, you know, pre-COVID, she's exposing her uh, child to, you know, other sick children. Post-COVID, it's it's actually dangerous, right? Um, you know, for for her and whoever might be living with her as well. And um, and and she's not out just the copay if she has insurance. She's also out. The transportation. She's also out half the day's worth of wages, and there it may not even be possible for her to take time off of work. And so I always think of you know our patients who are in kind of that situation versus get online, spend fifteen minutes you know of quality time with a, a provider uh, who is you know um, available to you through video, and you avoid that entire situation. 
um, versus somebody like me or, you know, anybody else on this call, you know, we generally have reasonable, you know, bosses who will let us kind of take some time off to take care of our family. We're salaried. It doesn't hurt us. Right. And even if we did have to take half a day off, we could afford it. So I, my team is very, very kind of, you know, focused in terms of access on kind of trying to solve that problem for everybody. Um, Aaron, I think you you hit hit the nail on the head with the with the mission piece. Um, the you talked about uh, three industries that have lagged digital, but I would say they have led in mission. Healthcare, education, and public service have been the leaders in 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 mission. And and as 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 someone who who was not from the industry, I I actually have come in here and I've realized uh, one thing. It's easy to in- inject digital as hard as it may seem uh, and uh, into into purpose driven organizations and mission driven organizations. It's very hard to inject mission into you know organizations that are uh, digitally native, even correct as 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 these times are proving out to uh, for all of us. So so that is absolutely absolutely so true. But Kelly, to your point about access, when I came in here, I thought of access over a long period of time. So I thought of access for those lifelong learners. If we get to know those learners when they are in their traditional education system, we can serve them well over a life of learning over the next decade, the next two decades, the next three decades. So absolutely, we wanted to understand their data, their think of them as from a consumer perspective about lifetime value, correct? And, and all of that so that we can serve them better over, over time. But in COVID, that access, that ability to reach your end users directly has taken a very different meaning. I'll give you an example. Uh, in the UK, where you know Pearson is headquartered, has a large presence overall, there were roughly 8 million people that were furloughed. And what we were able to do in uh, six weeks was to able to create a portal called UK Learns where we were able to put 400 plus courses for free with our education ecosystem partners around math, around data science, around, you know, um, programming, uh, around dealing with stress, correct? All of the things that you do need in these times. And we were able to provide access of millions of pieces of uh, worth of content to those people who need it. And access took a very different meaning, uh, very timely meaning, correct? This is not talk in terms of decades or even, even you know, months. It was a matter of days and weeks. And that is where access has taken a very different meaning. And your ability to engage directly with your end users allows these mission-based organizations to truly stand, you know, uh, achieve their mission in ways that they haven't been able to do uh, previously, uh, uh, overall. That is so awesome. That is an incredible, uh, that's an incredible thing that you guys did. Totally. And such a, such a great point, Madur, about it's easier to infuse digital into a mission-driven organization than to infuse mission into a digital first organization. Hadn't thought about that. And I think, I think that is so fascinating. And I want to explore that a little bit more right now. So, 
To close out, the discussion I would love to have is actually more of a, a thought experiment uh, the, between the two of you. And I'm totally putting you on the spot, but um, would love to see where you take this. So my question is, if you two were to partner and prioritize how you would help other mission-driven, mission-first organizations like healthcare, like education, like government and otherwise, what do you think the biggest primary initiative would be that you would want to tackle together? And what would be your first steps in prioritizing action? Well, that's a great question. I, I think there's a huge overlap between healthcare and education as we're, I mean, you know, we're, we're now seeing, I'm, I'm hearing anecdotal stories about just, you know, around COVID or just about basic things that, you know, because we're so deep in the details of healthcare and how the epidemiology of COVID works, most people don't understand. And they're making assumptions that are false that are that are causing the d disease to spread. I mean, some of it is political, but some of it is just a lack of knowledge and understanding. I mean, the, the latest is, is that, you know, if you breathe into a mask, you're somehow depriving yourself of oxygen, right? Or, you know, kind of that, that's a, that's a, that's one example. But I also heard, you know, a, in a conversation with, with a health system recently where um, they had, you know, uh, employees, you know, getting together and they thought because they knew each other and nobody was symptomatic, they weren't kind of vulnerable, right? And these are employees within a health system, so they should know better. So I think there's a huge, huge effort that, you know, um, health systems and, and the education infrastructure could kind of, you know, partner on in just around how COVID works, but in more, more importantly around how health, you know, how to, how to become healthy, right? Um, and then also in the clinical research area as well, I, I think there's, you know, obviously a huge uh, uh, leverage point there. Those are two things that I can kind of highlight. Yeah. And, and that's a the, Kelly, I, I would say that's a that's a great but a hard question. Right. Because because um, if you if you think uh, deeply about it, uh, at the end of the day, these organizations will have to do everything that is still true to their mission, right? We, if, if they move away from mission, then we've missed the mark on, on what we are, we are trying to do. But what I can definitely say from based on my experience, having, having spent uh, lots of time in the tech industry and, and so on, are, are three things. First is these organizations, mission is the foundation, but they need to become more consumer driven. I think they they have uh, much more of uh, they they need to, tech understood very well the difference between a customer and a consumer, and I think every mission organization whether that is being in public service healthcare education if they have more uh, customer centricity that will serve them well and allow them to scale their impact. The second thing is this notion of platforms that Aaron talked about. I think there is definitely a need for purpose-built platforms in our industries. Way too many times um, uh, Aaron and I and our peers deal with general purpose platforms and try to fit it into our context. And that reduces our agility, that reduces our speed and our ability to act quickly. And we are, we are making heroic uh, you know, efforts during, during these times. And finally, 
from a from a health and education perspective, uh, I think uh, the the notion of uh, at least uh, the notion of there is a trade off between cost and quality. Correct. That happens in education. That happens in um, uh, healthcare. Uh, somehow, we actually need to bring that to the forefront because many a times, what I see is there is a, a outcry about the cost. Education is too expensive. Healthcare is too expensive. Or there's a talk about you know, oh, we are not getting what we need. I would love for that to come together and have a meaningful discussion in these industries about the cost quality trade-off and what is required right from that perspective. And that is a more fundamental discussion that we need to have as a society uh, in the context of where we are and where we need to be moving forward. I think, you know, it's it's absolutely amazing the parallels between the two industries because it's, you know, now that you said it, the, uh, you know, we're, we're getting criticized for the exact same thing and, and they're valid criticisms. You know, higher education is way too expensive. And so is and how Lord knows healthcare is. Um, and, and how do we how do we kind of innovate around that, um, but still become way, way more effective? And we're seeing kind of, you know, green shoots of you know progress, you know, in our industry where, you know, what one of our portfolio companies, um, Lyra, they have a behavioral health platform. And one of the things they've innovated around is, you know, that the traditional kind of, you know, therapeutic model of, you know, eight sessions weekly, they've kind of disrupted that and said, well, we're going to do five sessions over that kind of same eight, eight week period, but we're going to intersperse it with a bunch of cognitive behavioral therapy that can be done completely digitally, which is an educational product at some level. It's a training product. Um, a bunch of homework between those sessions and they're doing two things. One is, is they're lowering the labor content, which makes the, the platform much more affordable. And, and then honestly, in healthcare, it also makes it possible because we said we have such a, a dearth of, of behavioral health specialists to begin with. I mean, we, we can't even, we can't even, you know, get them to the patient at this point. Um, but, you know, more effect, more interestingly, they have done an amazing job and it's an actually much more effective product at the end of the day. So they've seen way better results, um, you know, through through that kind of approach. So, I, you know, there I think there's there's instances where, you know, you can start to see um, a lot some improvement in, in, in healthcare, And I'm sure there's the same thing in education as well. Some of those innovations. I, I totally agree, Aaron, with you. I think I love to have the discussion on the outcomes, correct, as a society, as a nation, because that is more important. Uh, or e- I, I wouldn't. I, I'm not saying that is more important. That is equally important as cost is, uh, and our understanding of the interdependency of the two is absolutely critical to to progress uh, as a, a as society as large. Uh, and and frankly, the bridging the gap between the haves and the have-nots. Completely, yeah. I mean, Aaron, the the Lyra platform you mentioned is you, you know on this podcast, I talk so much about how much I love my virtual therapy, which is through Lyra. And also, I'm thinking about Zelf, which you've talked about, uh, you know, in several episodes here, and the notion that you know medical providers can actually prescribe uh, digital 
experiences, learnings, uh, exercises to improve health, which also just feels really aligned with both what you, Mitter, and what you, Erin, have been talking about in terms of what access means and what it could mean for society. But even even bigger than that, it's 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 really exciting to think about what happens when people like the two of you get together and start discussing these these challenges because there's so much opportunity to improve both through the convergence of of your expertise and i think our our listeners are going to get a lot out of listening to this conversation i sure did and uh, i want to thank both of you for for joining us today so madur aaron thank you thank you for joining us thank you kelly thanks for having us You've been listening to the Think Tank Podcast, brought to you by the Digital Innovation Group at Providence Health. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review or follow at Prov Innovation on Twitter for more discussion about how digital can inspire solutions to some of our biggest challenges. I'm your host, Kelly Stonelake. Until next time, take care. <laughs>